currently uh, going through at a, a, a slow and unhurried pace through the book of Luke. And uh, we're going to hit a, a moment in Luke when we're not really looking at one passage as much as zooming out a little bit and looking at the whole chapter that we've been in for a while now, which is chapter 9. And there's a theme, there's a, a pattern that emerges that I think is really important for us to take a hold of. And so if you, are, uh, if you do have a Bible or if you have the Bible app on your phone, you can turn, tap, swipe uh, your way to Luke chapter 9, and we will read uh, two of these stories in the pattern, so you can start at verse 33. Um, and just, just as you are turning there, as, and as I've been thinking uh, last few weeks, but very particularly this week about this, uh, this sermon, I've been thinking about how, uh, how appropriate and applicable it is for, for every single person. Because as we get into the depths of why these disciples seem to keep stumbling rather than walking, why they keep seem to, to, to hit mistakes and failures, and the reason why they keep doing that, I keep thinking about the ways that I do that you know, every, every day, every week. And, and, and my journey with God will look different to your journey with God. But there have been moments this week when I've had to stop and pause and ask for forgiveness from God and on one occasion from someone else, which wasn't the most comfortable, but really, really important to do. There, there were moments when I felt like, oh, God, this, this feels like heart surgery here. It feels like there was something bad in my heart that you knew you needed to root out. And, and I think that that's going to be true for all of us. And so this morning, would you, as you open the Word of God, would you put yourself under the loving and caring scalpel of our great physician? Would you let our surgeon, Jesus, cut us so that he can then heal us and restore us? Let him be the one to take the cancerous stuff out. Let him be the one to restore us to health, full healthiness as we walk in our relationships with him. And that's what I want to pray for right now so we can close our eyes. And Jesus, we do come to you. And Lord, we ask that you would have your way in this room. That is not just something we say. It's not a vague Christian phrase, Jesus. Come and have your way in this room. And Jesus, would you start with me? Would you start with my heart? Before I look to the left or the right, start with my heart. Make me pure, Jesus. Cleanse me, Jesus. Heal me, Jesus. Would the Word of God this morning, as it is opened up, would it instruct us and inspire us? Would it cut us like it cut the, the crowd in Acts 2? But Holy Spirit, would it heal us as well? You are healer. It's not something you do occasionally. It's who you are in your nature. As you have made us new creation, would you come and heal us and make us more and more and more like your Son, we pray. Cut and heal, instruct and inspire. We are yours this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, so there is an idea here found throughout Scripture, specifically found throughout the, the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, which is that he did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. The healthy do not need a doctor. It, it is the patients who need the doctor. 
uh, that idea flows into so many things. I was thinking this week with a friend just about grace and the nature of grace and feeling like grace is not for the perfect. The perfect have no need for grace. Grace is for the imperfect. Grace is for the moments when we need it the most. And I don't know when last you felt like you failed. Not like, you know, you didn't take the bins out on the day that you should have, you know. Sorry, you know. You know, not, not the small little things in life, like when, you know, when you were asked to do the dishes and you didn't do the dishes. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that, that's not the moment that grace is for, right? There's a small amount of grace maybe that's needed for that, but not, but not, not a really big amount of grace, you know? That grace is really most desperately needed in the moments when we feel most disqualified from it. That's when we need it the most. And that's when Jesus moves towards us the most. And it's interesting to see how as these disciples go from one failure to another failure to another failure, just how many times Jesus corrects them but constantly moves towards them. He doesn't run away from them. And he targets something inside of their hearts. Last week, we, uh, we spoke about, for those who weren't there, the story of the transfiguration. It's a story when Jesus grabs his guys, uh, three guys, they went up a mountain, and when they were there, something remarkable happened. It was like Jesus had lived his whole life with a veil over his head, but for a split second, it was kind of like the veil was removed, and it's like, whoa, this is who Jesus really is right? Like he, he had put on flesh and he walked amongst us like he was any one of us, but there was like a moment when God was like, this is who my son is. And, and it says that in verse 29, his face changed and he was uh, like a white light appeared and radiated around the mountain. It was incredible. And then there were two guys who joined with him. There was Moses and Elijah. And Jesus was like, hey, I know you guys. I was with you in the Old Testament. And they bumped fists with each other and, you know, checked on how they were doing. Moses and Elijah were asking how the, you know, diets of loaves of bread and fish were hanging out. And, you know, Jesus has to be, he still has to be kosher, remember? Like, so it's like, oh my goodness. And so they were checking out on how each other was doing. And, and then there's another moment, right? The first part of the story is this amazing, glorious, majestic view of God. The second part of the story is how we... Well, we're the opposite. <laughs> we're the opposite of how majestic and glorious God is. Let's pick up that story. Verse 33. And as the men were passing from him, G Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is not good that we are here. Uh, sorry, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he had said. As he said these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And, the voice, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Don't you hate it when you make a mistake and the mistake is in public and other people watched you make that mistake, right? Now, I'm looking very specifically at the introverts in the room because this is literally our worst nightmare, 
right? You know, there's a reason why in that lecture hall for three, four, however many years, we were silent the whole time. Like, there's just no way our hand is ever, like, because if your hand goes up and you get called and you answer wrong, death. Death, dead, dead, dead. Like, it's just, it's the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to us, right? Like, and it, have you had that moment lately, right? That moment, maybe you felt a bit silly. Maybe you had a moment in front of us. You're like, I can't believe I, I did this thing. Have you ever had a moment when, you know, you were caught out in public in front of other people and it wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like a mistake. It was like, Everyone is very aware that you should have known better. You should have done better. And everyone knows it. And you just can't hide. You just can't run. You felt that weightiness, that, that sense of heaviness that's there? When Silla was going through the passage last week, I couldn't help but feel that that's what Peter was going through in that moment, right? Peter, in front of his disciples and in front of these Old Testament heroes, makes a big error. He makes a big mistake. You see, Jesus was talking about his departure. Selo said that that's his exodus. He was talking about leaving, going somewhere, and Peter not knowing what he said. So shooting from the hip, as he always does, Peter says, no, 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 we should stay and we should camp because, uh, because you know, we're weird and only weird people like to camp. So let's pitch tents because that sounds like a good idea. You know, like it's just, he, he, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go, and that's his plan. And, you know, he's kind of surrounded by glory, so I think he, you know, probably is worth listening to. And Peter's like, ah, I think we should stay. I know you're God, get it. I know that there's, you know, this whole glory mystic thing happening right now, and, you know, you just, can you just, you need a, you got a very kind of, well, who's that vampire in, in, in Twilight who sparkles in lights? Edward, sorry, Edward. I know you've got your whole Edward Cullen thing going on now with your face and the sparkly stuff and whatever, but, 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 but I, me, me the fisherman, me, 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 the, me the guy who's lived for you know, just a couple of decades, you know, me, me the guy who's very ordinary, I think you should stay. I'm just, just letting you know, my opinion, stay. He makes a huge error here, right? He, he doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what Jesus was saying. But come on, Peter, how long do you have to be walking with Jesus to try and get the stuff that Jesus is talking about? At the very beginning of chapter 9, Jesus is saying, by the way, we're all going to go, right? And he sends out his disciples and they're going, 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 you know, like, like Christianity is just a go and tell kind of faith. And Peter's like, yeah, I feel like staying. I don't know about you. I feel like we should all stay, Right? Isn't it interesting that how the people who are you know, most familiar with God still very often don't get God? And if you are a Christian, if you have walked any length of time in the faith, you will know a little bit of what this is like. The longer you spend with God, the more aware of how different He is from you. The more you are aware of your sin, the more you are aware of His holiness, the more you are aware that there is an inevitability around walking in this world with Jesus Christ. And there are moments when you just don't get him. His ways are just higher. His thoughts are just higher. And so Peter had this moment when he got knocked with this sense of, I thought I knew you and I thought we knew what we were doing, but I got it wrong. And I got it front, wrong in front of other people. Yet 
and yet it is a little bit more complicated than that because this is not the first time Peter has seen Jesus and really known who Jesus is. You see, they're on top of a mountain now, but in Luke 4, they were on a boat. And when they were on a boat, Jesus did a miracle that only a professional fisherman would have really, truly understood. And, and Peter was so blown away by who this man was. He had it revealed, this is God himself, that he uttered the words, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Like, like I can't be with you, Jesus. You're too holy. You're too perfect. You're too majestic. You're too great. You are God. I'm just a fisherman. And so in Luke 4, Peter makes a mistake, and he says, Go away from me, Jesus. I'm too lowly. Peter's experiencing an inferiority complex when he comes to Jesus in Luke 4. But fast forward a few chapters now, and he's not on a boat. He's on top of a mountain. And when he's on top of the mountain, he's faced with Jesus, and he's seeing glory again. He's seeing the holiness of God again. And yet something has switched inside of Peter. It's not an inferiority. I can't be with you, Jesus. It's actually a superiority. I deserve to be with you. I get to be with you, and I think that you should stay with me. I know you've got your plan and your mission, but, but it suits my plan that you stay with me and just huddle up, and it's me and you, and you know, let all the others do whatever they want to, you know, and just sort of run around, and, but it's me and you forever, right? And he suffers from the same thing. Both the inferiority and the superiority of Peter kicks in in ways that are contrary to what God is doing. There will be times when you might feel like you are deserving because you read your Bible a lot, right? You tithed enough, right? You, you've prayed enough. You've come to church regularly now, right? Or you've, you know, there, there, are, there are so many things we do that make us feel like I, I am righteous. All you're doing is creating a righteousness of your own that will never fulfill the law of God. And then there are other moments, right, when you feel inferior. There are other moments when you, you are like Peter in the boat. You're like, stay away from me. Get, get far away from me. I can't be with you. I know just how bad I am. I know just how far I am from your standards. If you get too close to me, something bad is going to happen to me. So stay far away from me, right? You and I fall into the danger of considering ourselves before we consider God before us. It's a form of pride. It's a form of overly thinking about ourselves too much. And so Peter gets this kind of glory cloud rebuke. He doesn't just get told off. There is a glory cloud that kind of covers him. And then there is a voice from the heavens into the glory cloud. And, and the, result, the result is verse 36. He stands in shame. He stands in the shame of knowing I've got it wrong. I haven't responded to my Savior in the way I should have. And, and, and it's so troubling how Peter, who walks with Jesus, <laughs> who lives with Jesus, who hears everything Jesus says, who is witness to the greatest miracles in human history, man, if, if Peter can get this wrong, I can get this wrong. You can get this wrong. You want some good news? It gets so much worse. <laughs> it gets so much worse. 
because this is not a moment of failure. This is a part of an ongoing pattern. This is not a moment of failure. There is a pattern of failure. Let, let me take you through it briefly. You see, in verse 13, we had the feeding of the 5,000, and, and the disciples' claim to, to them is, but we only have five loaves and two fish. They might as well have said, but God, we can't do this. God, we don't have faith for this. God, we don't have belief that this is possible. And so in verse 13, at the very beginning of our story, they, they question God. I think you can go on a, a slide or two and it's there. In verse 13, they have a failure and the failure is unbelief. And then in verse 33, uh, Peter is on the mountaintop saying that Jesus should not be on mission with, for the world. He should stay with Peter for, for Peter. And so in verse 33, there's a lack of understanding about who Jesus is and what Jesus has got to do. And then in, in verse 39, which we also read last week, in verse 39, you've got the, a dad who comes to Jesus and say, hey, all your other disciples, yeah, they're kind of rubbish. <laughs> they kind of suck. They can't even cast out the demon, right? And the reason is because Jesus then says in verse 40, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Which is not words you really want to hear from Jesus ever, hey. Like, how long do I have to put up with you? Like, please for eternity, please, 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 right? Again, there's a lack of faith, a lack of belief in them that stops them from working or operating in the purposes of God. And then in verse 45, Jesus is saying that, Basically, he's prophesying, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to give up my life. And their response is to reject it. They don't receive the prophecy from God himself. They choose to reject it and believe in something else. Again, it's unbelief. There's a pattern emerging by this point. Unbelief, lack of understanding, unbelief, lack of understanding. You're just tripping up on every single pothole in the road that is walking with Jesus, right? Everything we've experienced so far tells us that these guys fall into mistake after mistake after mistake. This is not a moment of failure. This is a pattern of failure. You want some good news? It still gets worse. Because we're not actually done. Actually, in the rest of the nine sections, there are four more moments when the disciples of God fail. In verse 46, they start arguing about which one of them is going to be great, even though they just seen Jesus, in verse 29, in glory and greatness. They start thinking about, oh, I wonder if I want to be great like Jesus too. I want a sparkly face as well. You know, it's just like, how does Jesus's glory respond to you thinking about your own glory? But it does. And then in verse 39, John is there trying to stop someone from casting out a demon in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' name. This is what Jesus said he was come to do. And John's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Why? You're not a disciple. You're not one of the 12. You haven't been picked. And so he stops someone from operating in the power and the purpose that God gives to all of us. And then in verse 54, they're in a Samaritan town, and the Samaritan town, don't, they choose to reject Jesus. And the disciples are like, that's it. Get them. Go on pour out fire from heaven and just nuke all of them. They rejected you, Jesus. Kill them. That's what they do. That's the response. After all of their failures, one failure from one town is, nah, just destroy all of them, Lord. 
And Jesus again has to rebuke them. And then in verse 59, you have a man who's asking, what does it mean to follow you, Jesus? And Jesus says, leave everything, come follow me. And his response is, yes, but first, can I go and do this? But first, can I go and do that? Can I figure out my stuff? And I will follow you, but just, just, just put my things in order first, right? It's just time and time and time again. We hit these monumental failures And it should tell us something. If the people who walk with Jesus the most fail like this, it should tell us that we need a response for when we will also have these moments in our lives. We call ourselves Reconciliation Road Church. The word road is meant to signify that we are on a journey. We're on a journey, friends, the Jesus journey. We are learning to be his disciples. And if we ever start thinking we've arrived... We're at the destination now. We're going to end up in huge trouble. We're going to end up with a complete lack of grace, not just for ourselves, but for everyone else in the room. Friends, we've got to have a response for the moments when we do fail, not just prevention of anything, but also restoration for them. So one of the questions that we should ask when we see this pattern that's throughout chapter 9 is, how do we respond when we do fall short. Your action is less important than your reaction with God. He's not asking perfection from you, but he is asking quick repentance. He's asking you to come before him. What do you do when you fail? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you try and make it up with a bunch of good works? What do you do when you know you've messed up? What are your things that you are going to run to rather than the Savior's grace? And, and you've got to ask the question, why are these guys failing so much? Why are these guys continually hitting pothole after pothole after pothole? Well, I think the answer is actually found in the middle section. You see in the middle section, there's this kind of uh, section about God's greatness the transfiguration, God's greatness, right? God casts out a demon, God's greatness. And then the last part is the disciples thinking about greatness but misapplying greatness. In verse 46, we read this. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. So Jesus has, in the transfiguration, revealed his greatness. But in verse 46, Jesus has to recover or redeem greatness. Because once we try and get our hands on a sense of what it means to be great. We can end up in dangerous territory. Uh, African theologian, 4th century bishop, St. Augustine, writes this about, about sin. He says, uh, he said of sin, if you go to it, that the essence of sin is being bent inward. The essence of sin is being bent inward. That's what it means to be sinful. It means to focus more on yourself than it is to focus on your God. You are bent inward. 
which is actually really similar to his definition of pride. Augustine's definition of pride is this, an overindulgence of the self. You consider yourself too much, and it will manifest in the superiority complex in moments, and it will manifest itself in the inferiority complex in moments. But both complexes come when you think and consider yourself too much, and you stop considering your Savior. Now, don't do what you're doing right now. Stop it. Stop it. Because what you're doing right now is you're looking to the person at your left. The eyes of your heart are rolling that way, and then they're rolling this way. And you're like, yeah, tell them. Proud. This guy really needs to know that stuff, right? Like, you just don't do that. Ask in you and your heart, where is the, this, this sinful pride, overindulgence, thinking about myself to the point when I'll begin to start missing God himself. And that's what we see these disciples doing, right? We see these disciples seeing God's glory and then hearing that he's going to die in order to achieve his glory. And their very first thought, how can I be great? That, that's an essence of sin kicking in, isn't it? That's the, I'm thinking inwardly about me. That's, that's, and that, that's coming from a root of pride, uh, an overindulgence, an overfixation on yourself. That's what we find here. It's so interesting that in verse 46, it says the word argument, and in verse 47, it uses the word, uh, well, depending on your translation, some say reasoning. Uh, the NASB says uh, thinking. They're the same word, though. So they are arguing, and Jesus is knowing why they're arguing, right? He's able to know the intentions of the hearts. He's able to see not just the argument, but the hearts, the motives that are behind the argument. And his, his summary picture, that the foundation, the root of the failures, not just in this moment, but in every moment, all eight that we find in chapter 9, is proud. They, these guys are pursuing their own greatness, and that's what happens when you and I, with our sinfulness, try and take a hold of God's greatness. We can misapply what it means to have a God who is great. And we can think that we can try and make it ourselves and grab a hold of it for ourselves. Now, we become great because we're with God. You know, I, one of the things I was thinking of is that pride is infectious, Pride can seep into so many different areas of our lives. It's widespread through these disciples. It's widespread through this chapter. Just failure after failure after failure. Every time they're thinking about themselves, they seem to fall into trouble. And it can be infectious in our lives too. So, so there's no part of your life, friends, that is safe from this poison. There's no part of your life that you don't have to reconsider now in light of Scripture. It's, you know, consider your abilities. How often can you feel proud about your abilities or your achievements or your resources or your socioeconomic status or the cultural group that you belong to or your attitudes towards other people in your lives? How easy is it for us to, to just see this poisonous root of pride manifest itself in our lives? Even when we think about the people who are in our lives, our family, our friends, our colleagues, our co-workers, our, our brothers and sisters in the faith, every time you stop thinking about the best of someone else, every time 
you are unable to think of them because you're too busy thinking of you. Every time they try and share something vulnerably and you insert yourself into the story. All of these times, all of these moments, small little signs that we haven't yet fully died to ourselves and therefore get to live for God. Pride can manifest itself in the superiority and the inferiority complexes that we so easily face. I was, I was struck by something Jackie Hill Perry said. Uh, she tweeted this a while back. She said, often it takes all I have to keep up with the many areas of my life that pride manifests itself. It takes all that she has just to keep up with the different areas that pride can just flare up in, in our lives. I've shared this with a couple of people this, who are here already this week. There was a moment this week when I found it, it popped up in me in the most ridiculous way possible. There was someone who uh, was talking to me, and this person just said, I feel really busy right now. That's all they said. And for some reason, in me, in that moment, just the flare-up of pride came in, and I'm like, huh, you're busy. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm busy. You, I don't know what you are. You, you, and I automatically started boasting in how overwhelmed I felt. How ridiculous is pride that we can find such silly things in our world, destructive things, and somehow begin to boast in those things, those very things. And so my, my tone of voice expressed my pride. My, my facial expression, though thankfully they didn't see it, <laughs> expressed my pride. And, and what I said inside my heart expressed my pride. I looked at them, and I looked at me, and I thought that I, I no, no, no I, I'm busy. You're not busy. But what I'm really saying is, I can handle more stuff. I've got more capacity. Like, a superiority complex kicking in. I can do more. But also, inferiority complex. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at me. I'm dying over here. I need some help, right? I'm over capacity in 500 areas of my life. I'm just thinking, how did, I, how did I do that? How did, I, how did my heart automatically jump to this form of pride? Which leads me to the next thing. Pride is not just infectious. It doesn't just infect different parts of our lives. It, it is also irrational. It doesn't make sense for me to boast in, in how much I need help right now in <laughs> different things. It, that does not make sense. I'm feeling superior about being inferior. It's, I'm sorry, I'm still a, bit, a little bit mind-boggled at my own sin even now. I'm like, wait, what? You know, it, it's irrational, and it's irrationally inconsistent. You see, pride is the bent inward, the overindulgence of yourself, but it doesn't actually show yourself. It doesn't show yourself fully. It's like, it's like looking in a mirror, but the mirror has a filter. That's, that's what pride is. It's not really looking at you, just the version of you that you would like to consider, whether superiority or inferiority. It doesn't show the real reflection of you. So in some ways, it's like an Instagram filter, right? And in this filter, you can just airbrush out the stuff that you don't want to be there, so you get to consider the you that you would like to be. And then you can think, yeah, so I then get an overinflated ego. 
where I start to indulge in myself more, think, perhaps think more of myself than I am, or maybe think less of myself than, than I am. And, and, so, and so actually pride can often be grown in the, in the field of insecurity. The things I am insecure about are usually the things that are going to sprout out pride in my life. And so a good question to ask is, where are you feeling insecure? Where are you feeling weak? What are the things that you would like to airbrush out of yourself? They're usually the things that you'll find the, the infection of pride in. And there's a couple of examples of this. So for example, in verse 39, these disciples are unable to cast out a demon. But then in verse 49, they tell someone off who is able to cast out a demon. So, so what, should, should we do it or should we not do it? That, that, that's inconsistent, right? That doesn't make sense. So you get annoyed because you can't do it, and then you get annoyed because someone else can do it. That, that doesn't seem to make sense. Or, for example, uh, in verse 13, they struggle with, the, uh, with an unbelief that causes them to doubt whether God can miraculously feed 5,000 people. But then in verse 54, they're trying to call fire down from heaven on a village that also is struggling with that same unbelief. It's like, wait, wait this is inconsistent. This is irrational. That's because it's sin. That's because it's sin. That's because it's pride. It will flare up in ways. And if you can logically find it, then you can begin to deal with it. But it, it's a filter. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in the U.S., says that pride is the one sin that will successfully hide from you. It's the one sin that will go undetected in your life because you're going to be filtering it out and airbrushing it out all of the time. It's irrational. It, it's infectious. And lastly, it's incompatible with true believers of Jesus Christ. It has no place in the lives of the followers of Jesus because it has no place in the life of Jesus himself. Actually, compared to God's humility, humanity's pride are polar opposites. They're the antithesis of, polar opposites, antithesis of each other. It's the bubbling up of everything about ourselves that God is not. That's what pride is. It's incompatible. And so when we consider that Jesus uses a prop, he uses a kid, he goes to the, the, the lowest of the social strata, the person who would have been overlooked, and rejected by everyone, not considered, not thought of highly, and he brings this child, puts him next to him, and through this child, exposes childishness, a lack of maturity in the life of the believers. And so he says of them, through this child, look how far you are from me. Look how much your pride drags you away from the person that you say you want to draw close to. This is the opposite of who Jesus is. You see, these disciples are trying to gain position while Jesus had given his position in heaven up. You see, these disciples were trying to pursue their own greatness. Meanwhile, Jesus was pursuing his own humiliation, not his exaltation. They came to the one who was prophesying not his coronation, but his death. They came to the one who had redefined what greatness looks like as meekness and gentleness 
and service to all people. And so this one child shows them just how far away pride is from godliness. Pride will cause you to miss God if you don't deal with it because you'll be too busy trying to become God and you'll miss him. Yet, the very last thing we find is that actually this child isn't just an object lesson to expose our pride. It's also an example, an invitation to you and I this morning of the ways that we can repent of it. Because as this child stands before them and as they see lowliness and meekness, what they'll find is an example of what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. You see, this is a reminder, the child laid before them. The child is the reminder that God doesn't overlook anyone, which means he won't overlook them if they repent of their pride. He won't overlook them because he is showing that he is able to see everyone and treat them with the dignity that they deserve. The child is a reminder to the disciples of the childlike faith that they are meant to display. Because it's childlike faith that enters into the kingdom of God. It's a reminder, is it not, that we enter into the kingdom of God not based on the things we do. What had that child done? But based on the person that we had become, children of the Most High God. It's a reminder that we are also his children. And friends, the root of pride can be displaced. It can be cut out with a very simple reminder that you are his child. He came to call you out and make you his own. And he didn't do that when you attained a righteousness of your own. He came for you at the right time while you were still sinners. And so if pride causes you to do Grace causes you to lay that down. Grace causes you to say, this is all I have, and it is enough. And you can experience the freedom of being a child of God. You can experience the freedom of no longer thinking it's about your performance or what you can do. It's actually about who God says you are. And so stop being proud in the things you do. And stop discounting yourself from the purposes of God. He has called you by name. He has made you his own. He has forgiven your sins. The only thing you could do was sin. And that has been washed clean by his blood. The best we have to offer, the Bible says, is filthy rags. And yet now... We stand with royal robes of righteousness. 